everybody, and welcome to an episode of Impactful Conversations, a platform to educate and inspire. My name is Tafadzan Lohu, and thank you for tuning in for the show. On this show, I interview and speak to individuals who are making a difference in their world, individuals who have a different way of thinking and are forming as leaders in their respective fields. I hope that you enjoy the episode, and I'd love to hear some of your feedback after listening to the episode, either by writing us a review or by heading over to the website, impactfulconversations.co.za, and heading over to the Contact Us section. Anyway, wherever you listen to this, I hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 20 of Impactful Conversations, a platform to educate and inspire. We're back again after a short production break, and I'm thrilled to have a special guest with us today. But before I introduce him, I would like to welcome you, the viewer and the listener, to the show. Thank you very much for all the wonderful support, and to all of you that have subscribed, uh, thank you so much for your wonderful, wonderful support. And if you haven't yet, I'd encourage you to do that uh, on your favorite platform, whether it be on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, Google Podcasts. We're soon coming to Amazon Podcasts as well. Um, and then also on, on YouTube as well. So yeah, we're currently on YouTube, so you can you can subscribe to the channel there. Um, we've got some awesome content coming up for you, both in this episode that's coming up now, as well as in the next few weeks. Uh, just to chat about what we've got coming up, uh, the Street Smart Skills for Your Corporate Career course um, was the inception of Impactful Conversations courses. That's kickstarting in exactly two weeks from now, um, from the day that we're recording this. And it's for anybody that wants to gain practical tips on, you know, making your mark in your corporate career or your job, uh, no matter what the industry. And that's if you're working, if you just started in the workplace, or if you aspire to be in the workplace. It's hosted by a digital engineer in artificial intelligence and author of the book uh, called Street Smart, Street Smart Skills for Your Corporate Career. So to sign up, head over to impactfulconversations.co.za. And uh, thank you so much to all of you who've signed up so far. I've been really overwhelmed by the number of people that have signed up. But uh, now for the moment that you've all been waiting for, I'm uh, delighted to welcome into the virtual room with me, uh, Melvin Lubega. Melvin, before I introduce you, or before I greet you, let me first introduce you to uh, the listeners and the viewers. So, okay, get ready for this. So Melvin is an actuary by training and is an experienced uh, tech entrepreneur and business executives who's helped, who's built businesses that serve customers across the, the world. He's a reference thought leader and invited speaker, both abroad and locally on digital transformation, disruptive innovation, the future of the workforce, as well as business strategy. He's the founding executive and current director of GoOne, a world leader in online training that has been recognized uh, on both the Deloitte Fast 500 list of the world's fastest growing companies as well as the Disrupt 100 list of the world's most disruptive companies as well. He's also a non-executive director of AdCorp Group um, very recently as well. Um, following his graduate studies at the University of Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, um, he founded GoOne, which currently serves clients in more than 20 countries. And prior to that, he worked for Boston Consulting Group, where he was their first associate in sub-Saharan Africa, as well as for Goldman Sachs in the UK. Um, my only gripe with Melvin is that he's a St. John's College old boy. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're actually traditionally enemies. That, um, <laughs> so that's, that's actually how we met. But uh, Melvin, thank you so much for uh, joining. How are you doing this afternoon? 
No, I'm doing well, Natasha. Great to be and great to be able to speak to you and the listeners as well. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining uh, on episode 20 of Impactful Conversations. It's great to have you here. Melvin, typically I start off, um, you know, with the guests. I, you know, I, I already know you, but, um, you know, for those of, those of the guests who don't know you, um, let's get to know you a little bit better. Um, you know, where are you from? Um, what are you passionate about? Yeah, tell us where you were born, where you grew up, and yeah, what are you passionate about as well? Oh, awesome. You know, I often say I'm a child of the continent. Um, so born and raised in South Africa, Johannesburg, but I have strong roots in Uganda um, as my parents grew up and were born in Uganda. And so I feel like I'm a bit of a son of the soil across the continent. Um, but I guess when I think of my conception of the world and some of my early informative years, definitely very much um, South Africa and Johannesburg. Um, and in my later professional career, spent a bit more time um, abroad in the US, Australia, the UK, building out some of our businesses. Mm, no, awesome. We're gonna we're gonna dive a little bit into that, but um, let's let's dive right in. Um, so let's let, let let's get to it, right? I, I want to talk about your your career. Um, so talk to me a little bit about let's let's start it off. Uh, you know your studies first. Um, why why actuarial sciences and statistics? What what led you to make that choice? Yeah, it was an interesting one at the time, you know. And so, uh, you know, coming from, I think, quintessential African family, you know, my parents' generation, when you were smart, you became a doctor. And that was that was it. That was all. I mean, even anybody else was like, okay, fine. You couldn't be a doctor, so you became, I won't mention other degrees because, you know, I'm trying to save the piece here. But let's just say there were others that fell in line thereafter. And it's interesting where, um, so my older brother was a doctor, grandfather was a doctor, my father was a doctor. So lots of my mother also a vet, but also a doctor by term. Um, sister and I, other rogues, that side of things. But for me, when it came down to thinking through career path, I asked myself for studying rather, what did I enjoy? And so I've always enjoyed quanti- a quantitative approach to problem solving, uh, particularly around mathematics. Um, and so I knew I wanted to do something that was quantitative. But in the same vein, I also wanted to do something related to finance, because for a brief time I did um, financial mathematics in high school. I thought like it was something I quite like. And so for me, I was thinking through different courses. So I thought of engineering, and you know, engineering for me was tough because there were so many different types of engineering, and they're also different. And so outside, and I couldn't make a choice. Whereas for me, I knew like, look, on the commerce side of things, it was a pure, am I doing accounting or am I doing actuarial science? And that was almost the lens which I looked at things. And again, not trying to start beef here, but in digging deeper, I found that accounting was primarily about looking at things that happened in the past, whereas actuarial science was taking your understanding of today and trying to predict the future and model risks and events. And so I thought to myself, actuarial science would be a good quantitative financial and commerce-related skill set to help me um, understand the world as a lens. And I like the way it's about long-term thinking. And you know, back then I used to have an opinion that if you had the right data points, anything could be predicted or modeled. Um, I still believe that to be true, but I still struggle to think that, you know, because of X, therefore Y in every instance. Um, but those are some of the views I held as a younger man. <laughs> Thank you for that moment. Yeah, so you, you participated, you know, heavily in, in student leadership in your time at university. Um, you know, so tell me a little bit about how your leadership style formed um, through this, and I guess also evolved, you know, after having been, you know, head of school at, at St. John's College as well. Yeah. It's interesting one, you know, when I when I think back to 
my leadership journey. In hindsight, it can look like, okay, no, Malvin was head boy. He was head, so I was head boy in my primary school. I was head boy at St. John's. I was head of my residence at GCT. Did SRC, was head of the presidents of the African Society at Oxford. So you can easily look back and be like, Malvin's that guy that sells for that stuff. But I wish mm. I could say that it was, it was more so, I always found myself in communities or groups where I just wanted to serve those communities and, and serve that group. And almost found that like through that service and wanting to serve it better, I found myself in leadership positions. And so I guess over the years, though, my leadership style has honed it. I even say more so now in my professional career, where I'm mm. at the point where the leadership style typically of people in the leadership of the organization determine the culture, determine certain norms in the organization. And so if I think about the journey, it's always been around serving um, and it still remains the same today. And I think I've been fortunate to have increasingly bigger communities to serve. Um, but also, most importantly, I think I've been very fortunate to have phenomenally strong team members. And yeah. it's something which I always sit back and just reflect on in life, just the blessings I've been able to have. I mean, I think of my, my, my perfect body in matric um, at St. John's where just, you know, my debuted boys, you know, counterbalanced me. Um, just like really, just really strong teams. And that's been able to shine. I think of my house committee when I was in Kapana at UCT. Again, phenomenal group of individuals. Um, all of us who relate to different people differently, had different skills, but collectively were really strong. And even today, I think about the time we spent in Go One, where, you know, if you think of the founding team at Go One, so you got me and Actuary, Andrew is an economist, Chris is a lawyer, other Chris is, is, a, is a computer scientist, and who's a medical doctor. And just that different perspective um, in terms of approaching problems, but it still have a unified approach to leadership, I think has been quite, couldn't have beneficial. And so I guess where I am now, it's very much as a leader, always asking myself the question, how can I enable those I lead to be their best selves and for them to leave lives of purpose? And so something I always tell my team, especially the hiring managers within the teams, is that it's your job to make sure the people who you hire are successful in the organization. And so yeah. if you take with that particular approach and extrapolate that elsewhere, you find that you're able to keep a good true north when you think about decisions and actions. Mm. And is that, is that how you would describe your, your current sort of leadership style at the moment? I, I definitely would say that. I think it's, it's different, you know. I think of like, you know, days in high school when you'd be standing in front of the school before mm -hmm. first in rugby match and you're like getting the crowd riled up ready to take, like, yes. take, the, take the hill, as it were. Um, yes. I think it always comes down to providing leadership and guidance. And I think it's something which I reflect on a lot particularly now during the time of COVID-19 and the pandemic where, you know, it's uncertain times. And so often, you know, a leader can have a vision of where they want to go and know like, look, because of experience where you want to be. But I think what the pandemic taught me as well is just the importance of, as a leader, one, to take care of yourself, but also yeah. just the power of transparency and making sure everyone's on the same page in communication. So, you know, everyone knows like, look, this is how good or bad things are and therefore making these decisions um, or just giving someone a true sense, because if you don't, aren't able to build that trust with the people that you lead, yeah. and they don't understand why you do what you do, um, I think you won't have positive outcomes, both individually and collectively. And so for me, I think it definitely has translated to my leadership style today, though I can definitely say it's been almost somewhat nuanced or honed um, and finessed through varied experiences, both good and bad. Mm. And if I had to build on that, you know, who who... Who are your biggest influences? Um, not influences, but influences. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to be like, 
So if I go to Instagram and I see who follows me, I mean, I'll say that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm talking about people that you've, I guess we can talk about, you know, people that you've met and, and mm. got to know. I'd also be curious to know maybe one person that you haven't met as well that you would, that you have been sort of positively influenced by. Yeah. Um, so, you know, something which I've come to appreciate, and so just for one, so my, so my mother was a single parent. My father passed away when I was relatively young, when I was eight in a car accident. And so it wasn't really a big father figure in the house per se, but I think definitely the legend of my dad has been inspiration for me in my life, um, even, even as a young boy. And I think at that level, just even reflecting on his journey. And so he was a medical doctor, but, you know, heavily involved in politics, was involved in the ANC, um, in leadership levels when we were growing up here. Um, even though as a foreigner, I got stuck in from the day he came in for like back in the 80s. And so just in terms of like, just how he was a leader, business person, he got scholarships to all the schools he ever went to, was fortunate to get scholarship to study in the UK, was again head boy in all these schools. And so that created an example for me of like, look, I look and no one's perfect, but in the same vein, just saying like, look, you know, you don't necessarily need to box yourself in. And if you're given gifts, you can make them work. But I definitely say ever since then, particularly in my professional career, I've been very fortunate to have people, if I think about like my house masters at St. John's, people who are mentors of mine, lecturers that are still now colleagues and friends who've spoken into my life. But I'd say people I've learned the most from and I influenced my life have been people that I haven't met. And just because I really enjoy reading biographies, um, particularly yeah. autobiographies, just to realize I like ones that are raw because often for me, I don't care about the outcome of decision. I care about the decision quality. So what was someone thinking about when they made that decision? So, you know, I mentioned to you earlier, um, Adrian Gore, someone I respect. Again, he was saying like, look, like decisions aren't normally distributed and it's often only, you know, one or two decisions in your life that actually have an outsized impact. And so just some of the ones I've read that I really enjoyed. I mean, I was listening audio book to um, so Stephen Schwartzman, so the founder um, of BlackRock Blackstone, and just about like his journey, where in hindsight, it seems like it was all romantic, but just going through the, the tribulations with him in those journeys have been very impactful. Um, and so I've been very fortunate to be influenced by people like that and mentors I've had in my life. To your question though, people who I haven't, who I haven't met who I'd like to meet. So something which I quite like is I believe that no company can have the impact, especially in, in an African context, the impact of a government or someone at public policy level. And yeah. so someone who I highly respect is, for his journey at least, is someone like Michael Bloomberg, just yeah. because, you know, he became a captain of industry, built the respect of people in his community, yes, the bankers in New York and so forth with the work they did building up Bloomberg. Um, also the fine made his wealth, accumulated his wealth, and then took the path of, of wanting to give back to society and first to his community, which was the New York, um, as mayor of yeah. New York. And I think for me, I quite like that journey of, you know, building up a skill, building up value, and entering the fray of politics or public policy um, or public discourse from a place of being, being a value-adding a value adding actor and being able to collaborate across spheres. And so it's something which I firmly believe in, that's the power of public and private collaboration. Mm, mm, I love that. I absolutely love that. So let's, we, we dive right in. Let's, let, let's turn the temperature down a little bit right now. I know it's summer, so let's, let's, let's cool it down a little bit. <laughs> So, so in in uh, in back getting to know you some more, um, tell tell me a little bit about your your daily routine. Um, so, what's a typical day in your life now? Um, you know, 
I'll say, let's say pre-level one, I guess. <laughs> life, life is about to change back to a, a new normal, I guess. Um, but also, you know, non-COVID pandemic daily routine, how different is it to your daily routine now? You know, because, and this is where I feel like I maybe, uh, it, it may seem odd, but not much difference to some extent, only because the bulk of my team in Go One or the teams that we work with in Go One are like outside of South Africa. And so there always aren't odd time zones. That being said, I mean, so obviously we have an office here in Waterfall and like we have a team here as well. But um, I did find like I was a remote worker or a nomad for such a long period of time when we're building out the business that it has been, hasn't changed too drastically. That being said, I mean, I'll answer your question directly, but I found, you know, in the beginning of lockdown, because I have meetings all over the place, you know, we do some stuff in agriculture, so we travel now and then to like the, 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 the nether parts of South Africa, further away from the bigger cities like Johannesburg and so forth, and often traveling between meetings to meet clients, partners and so forth in, in, in locally. And so mm-hmm. before lockdown, um, I used to travel a fair bit, just to a few countries. But if I think about the daily routine, for me, typically I'd, I would, it's interesting, I'd like to start the day with some of my colleagues in Australia, um, just because our yeah. 9 or 8 a.m. here um, is end of day in Australia. And so just being able to touch base with the guys, see where they're at and have an earlier start with them. Um, and then from there, transition to the South Africa day, um, typically have um, like an all hands or check-in with, with the local team, um, see what their priorities are, see how they're doing, if we can any blockers for the day, any big things we need to come through. And then just into like, you know, a series of meetings and getting things done um, in that way. Um, during lockdown, I've tried to have like a 12 to 1 stuff that I've blocked out where I call it lunch slash workout. I think I probably had more lunch than workout in that gap, but I mean, the ambition was there in my vision board, and so I still keep it in there. Um, and I get reminded all the time when I'm eating my lunch, being like, you should be working out right now. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, then, you know, something which, I, I mean, afternoons, I typically try to minimize the number of meetings I have just because I actually need to actually try to get actual work out. Because I also realized what happens to me for a very long time was I spend the whole day in meetings, and then typically our team in the US to be like, uh, West Coast comes online late afternoon, early evening. So you join the day with them. And then by the time you want to start working, let's say it's now like, you know, 8, 9, 10. I mean, actual working is like actually not meeting, but actually sitting down and getting graphed out. I then find by midnight, the team in Australia is coming back online, which is 8 a.m. for them. And so now in the afternoon, I try to be intentional, some uh, less so now during lockdown, um, just because I realized that time is flexible to try and actually have, actually dedicated like two hours in my diary where I say like, look, this is my quiet time where I can actually get work done as opposed to having meetings slotted in there. And so it has been a bit of a change, but I, reflecting on lockdown, I mean, early on I felt like I was saving so much time because I wasn't traveling to between meetings. And I was like, this is so productive. This is awesome. I'm going to change the world from my laptop. Um, but then what I, I started to like miss it. I started to like miss like, you know, not being able to like get in my car and drive somewhere. So I used to like take, I used to like get into my car, reverse out the driveway, like literally like five meters take a call and then like drive back in just you know to feel like i was moving this is just obviously, for a change but yeah just for a change mix it up you know just i tried having like moving my desk one day to the garden so just trying to mix it up because i realized you know whilst i, 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 I like my house and my four walls and all that good stuff i wanted to make sure that i was taking care of my mental health because i once i realized i was very busy on calls and so forth i wasn't giving myself that clear mental head headspace to actually like look mix things up and so something which i realized during this time is the importance of self-care um and wellness and so that that affected the schedule somewhat but from that perspective um try to balance out between work um you know thinking time and also activity 
I'm just to ensure that I'm also being the best me I can be so I can be the best leader and manager I need to be for my team. Mm-hmm. And I think what you said is actually so important, right? To That actually you almost need to deliberately make an effort to take care of yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Because, yes, you, you created a lot of time, you know, by not traveling, but very easily you can, it can become very destructive if you start, you know, overworking and not actually giving yourself enough time to, to rest and, you know, quite frankly, sleep as well, right? Yeah. Because it, the days just, you know, mingle into one and all of a sudden it's, it's Sunday and it's like, how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> so true, so, so true. Like I mean, like so. Um, when I came back to South Africa a few years, like probably three years ago, um, a few friends and I started a development finance company where we used to like finance invoice factor and discount and help companies with their working capital needs. And so I was living down in Cape Town, um, and I was traveling up to Joburg probably like every every like every single day, if not like because there used to be an airline, a low cost airline, which I hope I didn't like make them bankrupt. But they had the service where you could pay like. I think it must have been like 8,000 rand or 4,000 rand for unlimited flights between Joburg and Cape Town. And I literally used to use it like an Uber. Like I would like just go up like one day, come down in the evening, go up the next. And I mean, like it was really nice. But it was interesting, um, I guess, then where I found that the two hour flight between Joburg and Cape Town was my most productive time in my week. Just because it was like, you know, you, could, you couldn't do anything else. There were no calls, no messages. You're offline. You can just get things done. And so uh, the question is now, even without that travel, how do I create those spaces? Mm, that's a great point. It's an absolutely brilliant point. Tell me, tell me a little bit about your fashion sense. Right? I, I've, I've been intrigued about this for quite some time. You, you have quite a unique fashion sense, right? So, so tell me a little bit about where, where that comes from. You know, so at a young age, and a few levels to it, and so maybe the fact, and you know, you say intrigue could either be a positive or a negative. I'm going to lean into it, you know, because summer's positive. coming and you know, it's happening. <laughs> But I remember, so my dad was a guy that used to wear suits all the time. Like, you know when they say a gentleman knows no weather? I mean, that man was a G. Like, he was suit and tie through everything. And so he taught me how to tie a tie when I was very young. And so something which was always a hallmark of me was, like, trying to make sure that immaculate tie looked very sharp. But I definitely think where my style has definitely, over the years, improved was one when I began working with the Boston Consulting Group, where I was, so through, obviously, student governance, SRC, all that stuff, you're always wearing suits and ties. But in hindsight, I had very poor-fitting suits that were always too big for me, given like my understanding of style now. But I always had a tie, and that sold for it. Um, yet, um, I remember when I began working in consulting, the first day I came there in a suit and tie, like I was ready, because I came from the banking and Goldman Sachs, I was like, you know, suit and tie ready for war. And my partner at the time was like, no, um, to the like, managing director was like, no, Melvin, we don't wear ties here. If I can't want to see the tie, I keep one in the drawer and I take it out. And I was like, you know, because something is to be said. You know, when you wear, when you wear different ties, you can wear the same color shirt, same color suit, but it mixes it up. Now, when you have one less tie, all of a sudden, I'm like, am I that guy who's only wearing white shirts and a blue suit? I've become that dude overnight. Um, but it was quite fascinating, actually, working with, because I was, one, as I mentioned, one of the first associates in Africa, and so we're building up the Africa side of the business. I think when I started, there were five of us sitting in the Regis office in Santon, um, yeah. overlooking Nelson Mandela Square. And we used to work with lots of like flyers from Germany. And these German guys had the most immaculate fashion. Like they would like wear like the brightest like red chinos with like a crisp white shirt, brown shoes and brown belt. And they just look on fleek. And I was like, you know what, guys? 
And I just and I, I, I see adapt pieces of that into my repertoire. And I think where it compounded was um, following my time. Um, I never owned a pair of brown shoes until that point in time. Imagine a whole guy at the age of like 22, 23 had never owned a pair of brown shoes. Anyway, <laughs> we live and we learn. Um, you know, and so it's funny because I remember for my 13th birthday, one of my mother's friends got me a brown belt and I still wear this brown belt to today. And I got that for my birthday gift. And, you know, in hindsight, we can also, I was younger then, so forgive me. I was like, how can this lady give me a brown belt? Who actually wants a brown belt? And literally that thing sat in my cupboard for at least 10 years. Now it's probably the belt I wear the most in my life. And so I'm very grateful for my aunt for that like investment she made in my life. And so I think when my fashion sense took a, a level up was actually probably my time in the UK, particularly at Oxford, where mm. I think just one really good friend of mine, sorry, the most stylish guy I know who just brought the heat. And it's a very good insight that he and I to share and we agree on where you can have the most expensive clothing but if it doesn't fit you well, it doesn't matter. And so yeah. we were all students trying to hustle, make our scholarship money go further. But I think it just comes down to, one, how do you have a unique dress sense? But also, how do you wear what makes sense for your body and for your style? And so yeah. right now, I'm not the most outlandish dresser, but I do feel as though I try to have a style that is unique. And also, I feel like I'm very much grounded in Africa. And so I like to always have touches of Africa, whether it's a cheeky pocket square there or pendant that speaks mm-hmm. to the continent. And so just trying to be authentic um, in that particular way. That being said, I mean, I remember when we, we went from Oxford to um, San Francisco to Build Out Go One, and I went there with yeah. my tweed jackets from the UK and my bow ties, and you literally get to Silicon Valley. And I'm going to say this boldly. It's often a race to the bottom who can dress down. And so there I was with all my sister things I've invested in, there guys like wearing slops and t-shirts. These are like very wealthy, very successful tech people. And so I've also found that my dress sense has changed in my environment. Um, I won't say I'm the quintessential tech entrepreneur because I do like to mix things up sometimes. But definitely, yeah. I'd say my dress sense a function of my experiences to date. Mm, mm, I love that. Absolutely love that. And uh, maybe maybe next time you, you come back onto the show, you'll be a, a fashion influencer. So I look forward to that. <laughs> I receive. You know, like, let me, let me just receive it and take it. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about, let's talk about Go One, right? I want to, I want us to dive into, you know, the, the, the founding, founding steps of, of Go One. But first, before we do that, you know, tell me, tell me a little bit about your choice to study further um, after you finished your, your, your degree at, at UCT. Um, you know, what, what was sort of behind that choice? Yeah. And so, you know, I always knew that I wanted to study further. The question was always a function of timing and when that took place. And so, because, for example, from a young age, I wanted to, let's say, apply for the Rhodes Scholarship, the one that I got to, that, that, that took me to Oxford. And so I knew that yeah. would enable further study just because I remember, like, for undergrad, um, deciding on, like, where to study, I mean, there were some U.S. universities that were interested in me coming abroad. But at the time, I was very fortunate to be at St. John's on the scholarship. My mother was a single parent um, uh, working for government. And I, I thought to myself, like, look, you know, Whilst I could go, post, like let's say, abroad for, for undergraduate, the reality is that literally the amount of money to cost my mother to fly me back to come see her at home from when I was in the U.S. would be more than she would have paid for school fees my whole time at St. John's. And so you never want to have that trade-off where like, a parent's like, uh, do I see my child or do let them stay where they are? And so I was like, look, then I told myself, fine, get a good scholarship locally, and then for post-grad, you know, try to go abroad. And so I always knew I wanted to get there. I think for me, in terms of the timing, it was both you know, fortuitous and unplanned, 
Um, but in the same vein, I think I couldn't have had it any better way. Because just for context and for everyone else is that I did my chore science, um, then worked for two years and then um, went to do my postgrad um, in the UK. And what I found was actually that break of working in between was really valuable. One, because it gave me context to actually what's important in the world in terms of, because, you know, I think typical, you know, students, you know, we want to get our first and get A's and C's for everything. But in doing that, you approach your work as an academic exercise, right? Like you're learning because you want to enjoy the subject, but you also want to like solve for the test and the exam. Whereas what I found was after working, I was able to get a balance of, yes, you can do well in everything, but you can also be very specific around the kind of takeaways you want to get from a program. And so for me, I feel like that working piece at, at BCG and also G at Goldman Sachs was very helpful to help me crystallize and make sure I took away the right things. Because, for example, if I think about the, I saw my second master's at Oxford was focusing on technology, particularly within education and professional development. And it's a very theoretical course. I mean, like, like so you go to the deepest Vygotsky and like theories of like, it's so deep in how you go. But I was able to bring a practical overlay to that, which then precipitated some of the thinking that informed the forming of Go One, um, because I was able to have a practical experience of having worked somewhere else. And so it was both intentional, but also rather unintentional. Mm, mm. And so if we, if we dive into that, I want to talk about that little two-year gap, right, between your your time, you're finishing your undergraduate and starting your, your postgraduate. Um, mm. I actually want this to link this to your entrepreneurship journey, right? I, I want to understand how much that that helped you um, in, in thinking about your entrepreneurship journey now looking back in hindsight. Yeah, that's interesting. So um, I was speaking in a conversation yesterday, masterclass, um, and it was interesting where I think it wasn't for my time in the two years corporate, I don't think I would be the entrepreneur that I am today. And I think it's something to, to mention. I think it's very easy. I think, you know, I think of the times when, and I'll get to your question, but where, when I finished undergrad, if you did, went straight from undergrad starting your business, people would be like, you failed. Like, don't worry. I've got my dad's uh, CEO at this company. We can get you in. Like, don't struggle, man. Like, you know, they can get you something. Whereas right yeah. now I find that entrepreneurship is very sexy and it's in. Um, and everyone's like, oh, entrepreneur, oh, man, I want to be you, man. I'm so jealous. You know, I'd rather not take my, I don't know, X million rand salary from the bank. I'd rather be an entrepreneur. I'm like, cool, man, you see you. And I think there's definitely a romanticization around it. But definitely my two years, particularly coming, being in spaces, I found like banking and consulting, particularly management consulting at international firms where I think BCG as a company puts a very strong emphasis on developing its people because ultimately your people are your asset, which is something which I still believe in many industries and businesses as well. And just coming in and being a sponge when it came to learning was very important for me on my entrepreneurial journey, but also in terms of better seeing the pain points and the problems that I want to solve. And so some of the findings we'll get to now from a grown perspective were built on views that I experienced in my time at BCG, for an example, um, and even before then. And so sometimes you have to almost like live the experience. And so like, for example, yesterday's conversation we're having with Adrian Gore, um, we were suggesting um, was around like, look, if you think of his journey, he worked at Liberty and then saw the opportunity for what became, you know, discovery. And I think there's something to be said around one, using that, that gap to one, crystallize on your skill set, but also more importantly, deeper understand the problem you want to solve. And I think for me, those two years definitely serve that purpose. Mm. And building into, to, you know, go one, 
tell me about the inspiration behind you know the inception so so what was the main inspiration behind starting it yeah and it's a good interesting one because like Okay, one actually began, like, our first learning part wasn't called Goan, it was called Aduro, which means spark in Latin, but then Aduro didn't scale in terms of a name and a spelling, and so we decided to, to, to flip back to Goan. And so it's interesting where I think the genesis of Goan was a function of the different founding members in the business of founding executives having different experiences. And so, for example, mine was more born in, um, during undergrad, um, I was an Alan Gray scholar, and was very much inspired by Warren Buffett for Fish and Alan Gray. So like deep value investors. And so a few friends and I came together and he pulled our scholarship money, convinced able to give us their money and began investing. And we used to invest, um, we spent Friday nights in the library having investment committee meetings. Um, and when some of the guys then began working for companies uh, like Goldman Sachs and others, because of compliance, you couldn't trade anymore. You couldn't trade stocks. And so we began to invest in smaller businesses like venture capital, private equity and so forth. Um, and so what's interesting there was, when you speak to those smaller businesses, those entrepreneurs said, look, their biggest challenge was finding the right people, yet when you ask them how do they train their people, they said, no, they'll learn on the job. Um, and so there wasn't a sense of like, how do you put together a structured learning environment um, for people? And so just for, and I guess, um, and just for context for everyone, I realized in the conversation is, um, go one, as a company, what we do there is, we help organizations train their staff um, through our online learning platform and our content hub. And so essentially today, we're probably the world's largest online corporate training library and ecosystem. Um, we bring together hundreds of thousands of courses from the best providers in the world, almost like a Spotify or Netflix for, for corporate training at that level. And so we offer that in a number of countries. Um, but so just to the point where I was then, where like, you know, in undergrad working with these um, small companies that weren't investing in their staff because they thought they didn't have the money or the time. I then worked in management consulting where often companies were paying us as consultants good amounts of money to often address problems that could have been resolved by them better investing in their staff, consi in their staff consistently. Um, yeah. And so just really the tools they were using to address those development needs left much to be desired. Um, and yet these are some of the biggest companies in the world with all the money, yet they weren't getting their training and development right. And so then when I got to, UK, uh, to the UK and got the scholarship to Oxford, I then for my second year wanted to focus on uh, like almost like having the space to apply my mind around that particular problem. And so that's why I chose the, the, the MSc in, in Education Learning Technology as a, as, as a focus. And so that was my journey. But I guess in parallel, um, Andrew, um, well, one of my business partners and one of the co-founders, he he had been building websites since high school. And so they, he and his high school friends had a web development company where they used to build websites out. And um, they were seeing, again, interesting requirements in the learning space because people were asking to build websites with learning requirements in it. And so at the time Andrew and I, I met, he was still very much had a very had a decently sized web development business. And so after much gnashing of teeth and meeting with the team and like, you know, because you know, it's interesting because I met Andrew so Andrew's an Australian, spoiler alert. And you know, the South African and stuff, you can appreciate this because, you know, growing up in South Africa, we were always taught to like despise Australians and New Zealanders because of like cricket and rugby. And so I was like, there's this guy, you know, he's Australian. And our class was small, so you couldn't like, you can't make enemies. But I was like, ah, you know, but he was really smart. And like, you know, he was, he was a likable character. And so once he overcame our, our deep ingrained, um, let's call it uh, national rivalries, um, just being able to get to know him as a friend and starting to share ideas around how we saw the learning space evolving and so forth, it became clear that we had similar views in terms of that. 
And so really it was that meeting of minds, but from different experiences that then led to the genesis of Go One. And so, I mean, we launched the incorporated Go One in 2015. Um, and what one needs to remember is if you take the incorporation date of, of like Go One as an initial entity, I mean, Andrew and I were still technically registered students at, in, 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 in Oxford. And so we, we then obviously with these other partners in the web development business then came together um, as I guess the five of us as executives and then began to build out Go One. And so we then applied to a program um, in, in the US called Y Combinator, which is like yeah. a tech incubator. Um, so yeah. Samsung gave birth to the likes of Airbnb, Dropbox, Stripe, and a few other very large companies. So very well respected. And I remember, so there were like the, 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 the five of us squatting it out in Mountain View in a two-bedroom house, taking turns on the bedrooms. And even during that time, I remember like we used to literally procrastinate. So Andrew and I were still writing our dissertations um, and literally like procrastinating. I used to procrastinate at night from studying calling clients in South Africa and trying to like call cold court organizations. Yeah. Um, and I literally remember like we submitted our dissertation probably two weeks before demo day, which is like the big final thing of Y Combinator where you demo your product and your, where you are in your business to all the big mm. investors. And mm. so it was almost through um, those experiences. But when we began the business, we were just a learning, a learning management system. So you can almost think of a learning management system being um, a platform, a shell that you can use to deliver training, almost like yeah. a bookshelf. But a company yes. still needs to put to buy the books and to create the books and so forth. And so we won the award for one of the best learning platforms in the world um, when we launched because it was the ease of use. Because what we discovered back then was that there were many software solutions actually out there, even applies outside of learning, but particularly in learning, where there were many LMSs or learning management systems out there. Um, and to be honest, if I knew how many there were back then, I probably wouldn't have entered this industry. But, you know, when you're young and you don't know any better, you're like, you know, gung ho, because there are literally like 3,000 of them out there. But we, and very glad to have won the award. But like, I liken it to Microsoft Excel, where Excel is a very powerful tool, but for you to get the most value from it, like using you know, VBAs, macros, all that good stuff, you need to be a super user. And so yes. LMS is very powerful, but to get the most value, you have to almost be like a mini like computer scientist expert. And yes. so for us, we said, how do you build an LMS that one shouldn't have to learn how to learn? And so focusing on the ease of use of the platform enabled us then to really create value and really create the power for our end organizations. So we began as a system, but over time what we realized was that everyone who buys a bookshelf is going to buy books. And yes. so if we can help companies with, and individuals get those books, why not sell the books and the bookshelf, at least bring the books prepackaged? And so yes. over that period of time, um, so we started the business, I was focusing more on business development and sales and then discovering that, and this is a small anecdote. So early as I was building up our sales teams and stuff is you go to a client and demo the solution with like dummy content, dummy videos. And then you'd be like, when can we get started? They'd be like, oh, no, we don't have any videos or content yet. Come back to us in six months. And literally, your whole sales cycle was gone. And so what we realized over time was that there are two types of customers. Those that were content creators who'd use our platform mm -hmm. to sell their content to, like, to people. So if you're a professional trainer, like a CTA creative provider, training, training people as a living, or you're a big company, say, like Sasson and MTN, who would be buying training from these guys, but often outside our platform. So we almost created a marketplace where we could net off supply and demand for training content. And that then evolved into um, what we built out as our content library or content hub, where we began to aggregate training. Um, so now we aggregate over 100,000 um, training items or content items from the best providers around the world with the assumption that we want to give you the books for your bookshelf um, whenever you're thinking about learning. Mm.
Mm. I absolutely love that, and I think that's that, that's extremely inspirational. And um, and I a couple of couple of little links that I'm seeing. I mean, you spoke a little bit about you know your your decision to study actuarial sciences in terms of the fact that you know you you you're almost solving future problems, right? And solving your your sort of problem solving mind and and that desire um, to actually solve problems, I think, is incredible, right? I think that 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 is sort of manifested in how the business has grown and, and, and in terms of the values behind the business. But the second thing I think is in terms of, you know, the fact that, you know, companies need to actually invest in people um, first and foremost, and that's actually the, the best, the best route to success is for them to actually invest in helping people become better. And I think, you know, what you're providing is that solution for them. Right. And I think in the, in, and the principles behind that are, I think are, are incredibly inspirational as well. And I want to talk about, you know, some of the challenges. What what challenges did you, you know, encounter in the inception, right? And I want to preface this question because I think sometimes, as you said, so like entrepreneurship right now, I think is is the in thing. And I think a lot of people who haven't entered into it, right, have this perception that, you know, they look at entrepreneurs like <clears throat> yourselves and they, they seem to think that, okay, cool, I can get there tomorrow. Right. And that, you know, Melvin, Melvin's, you know, growth was just, you know, linear or even exponential. Right. They don't realize that it's probably there's probably a lot of variation. <laughs> Population probably, around the mean. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably that's probably a trend line rather than anything else. <laughs> um, but I really want to I really want to talk about that reality. And I think it's important for people to. To realize that so tell me a little bit about some of the challenges and the realities of starting you know something that is so significant but that journey you know that inception of that journey what are the challenges that you encountered in that yeah you know it's a very valid point and i mean like you know i think can anyone and look very um, look i'm very so much early on my journey and so hopefully i have a lot more to go on that that curve i like that last curve you did there. it looked quite steep i appreciate that thank you <laughs> Um, so definitely it's a lot more to, to, to learn and do, but I think from my, from my experiences so far, definitely, I think there's so many learnings, I think personal ones, and I think always, and personal ones also ones which I think apply to business more broadly. And so like, personally, I think often you will be your biggest barrier to your success mm-hmm. and whether it's in your mindset, whether it's in your focus, there's so much, which you can self-sabotage more than you realize. I remember coming out of like, even my time at Oxford, you know, where I was thinking, I go back to like management consulting, they're doing banking. I had some offers I was looking at in the investment management space. And, you know, you're thinking back then where, like, my, my annual salary would have been, like, you know, three times what the revenue was in, in Go One. And you're like, um, and it's easy to be like, yeah, let me go take the show bet. But it's all about saying, like, look, I asked myself a simple question, right? Am I making the best use of the talents and skills I've been given um, in the space that I'm in? But also importantly, it's also a function of timing. And I felt like, look, I was at the point in my life, and I still believe I'm there now, where I can take that risk, and if push comes to shove, and I zero base, I lose everything, I'll be confident that I could build up again to something at least that I'd be proud of and say I was able to pursue myself. And so for me, quite early on, it was more so those internal struggles around like startup thing or flashy life used to have. Because back in the day, you know, in my consulting days, I was like, I worked in about 12 countries in two years. I mean, I was crashing at flying business class, living in the top hotels. I was like, I was a cookie. Now I'm like there. Literally, I, we used to have like, the kitchen was our office. And we had like five, we had like the window and like, just like, you know, different perspective altogether. And, it, yeah. and I think often 
I think especially as young professionals, your ego will get in the way because people know you as, ah, oh, you're the smart guy in school or you were doing that just in your job. Now you're going out to being like the entrepreneur. And the reality is you make sacrifices because I, in my businesses when I start out, I want to make sure I'm the lowest paid person because I want to make sure that like, look, we're in it together, we're building, we're doing what we need to do. And so I think for me, it's often more mindset at the beginning, which is the toughest thing to overcome. And also arguably ego and the perception and not caring about what people think, but more so about yourself. I think then when I go a level like deeper into, I guess, the business itself, I think in business, things will always take longer than you think they will. And I mean, like, and it's just, it is what it is. And I think you need to understand that, like, in life, things will take time. But also what I find benefit is that there'll be highs and there'll be lows. And I think one thing which I have said, the benefit of having, I mentioned to you earlier, having strong teams, but I think in business, having strong business partners, is that, you know, when you're feeling down, you know, your team member will be feeling up and vice versa. And just, you know, because... Entrepreneurship can be a very lonely journey. And so some people can find that connection through their partners, through mentors. But often I think in the business space, just having a business partner who you know you're in a struggle with and you're both like, you know, grinding is such a key thing. Um, mm. That being said, I think I never also had a strong appreciation for like what a P&L and what cash flow means. I think, you know, as a management consultant, you know, you're unexposed to that kind of stuff more directly than like a senior person. But I think definitely like when, you know, if you weren't doing certain things, like if you weren't, paying for electricity, it wasn't getting paid, the lights would go out. Whereas in the big yeah. business, like, things are paid, you rock up, you take out the lights up and you dominate. Yeah, um, exactly. Or even just like, you know, thinking about cash flow, where like, you know, you sign this a very big client and you work with some very large clients early on and the client hasn't paid you because corporates, let's say, have, I don't know, 60 day or whatever, 90 day payment terms. And you're yeah. like, I'm good on paper, but I got to pay salaries on the 25th, like, what's good? And so fine enough, yeah. that was one of the insights that, inspired the invoice factoring and discount business that we built out um, as plus uh, when, we, when I came back. But again, it's one of those things where things you just take for granted. Um, but in the same vein, I think just having people to be responsible for and having a P&L, I would argue yeah. have been like the most career developing things business-wise. I think my fast forward of acceleration of business understanding, business thinking, and just mm-hmm. understanding what it takes to build a business has been learned being in the trenches. Even though, yes, I did a business science, yes, I was in management consulting, but I think literally when you have people to report into you and actually like a business to build and an agency to do so, phenomenal. And I think you discount also how beneficial it would be. I think I discounted how good just being an entrepreneur would be for my business knowledge and understanding. Love that. Absolutely love that. That's, that is so profound and so powerful. So thank you for, for sharing that. Let's, let's talk about a topic that I know you, you are... Um, quite passionate about and I'm very passionate about as well, which is, um, you know, technology and innovation in Africa's future, right? Um, And before I preface, you know, the topic, I actually want to get your take on, you know, what is Africa's potential um, and the future that, you know, that technology and innovation has to play um, in that future. Yeah. And so you remember that curve that you showed us, which I think you're referring to. I think Africa's one's probably even steeper. I think just like the potential that to your question, I think is, it's really unbounded. And that's just because I think Africa has so much working for it. And I think it's something which we discount. I mean, we have such phenomenal, you know, natural resources across the board, you know, beautiful land, um, good resources underground, in the air, in the waters, really. Like, I mean, some of like the world's biggest freshwater like you know deposits and, and sources and bodies and are, are in Africa, but in the same vein we also have very powerful intellectual capital and human capital. Like something which, I mean, some of the most educated nations 
are in Africa. It's unfortunate a lot of people are in the, in, are in the diaspora, but in the mm. same vein, just that intellectual muscle and capacity just to do things. And I think at that level, if we're able to apply both of those to problems that we face yeah. um, and leveraging technology, I think mm. the potential is unbounded. And so I think technology has a big room to play because to some extent we actually are blessed in that way because we don't have the bounded infrastructure that many of our, let's say, Western counterparts have. I mean, I always joke my time in London where, you know, the streets you're literally walking on, some of the cobble streets, were there from like the 17, 1800s. I mean, literally, if you had an H2 Hummer, you wouldn't fit through those streets because they're so small because they're for horse and carriages. Whereas I feel like if I go to like, I don't know, the village in Uganda, I mean, there's no road. And so therefore you, you trailblaze your own way. Um, and I think it's analogous just in terms of how raw technology can play, but also the opportunity that exists for entrepreneurs young and old to actually create solutions that are suitable to the African context. I mean, one of the, one of the, the, the one of our portfolio companies which I've invested in um, is a, so again, quintessential example. So very smart individuals from Nigeria, um, fortunate to be schooled in the, in the UK, in, in the US. So MIT, um, Stanford graduates, they then came back to, to, they then came back home to Nigeria and realized that like, look, the agricultural value chain is broken. And so yeah. all the tools that were there to, let's say, de-husk, like, you know, um, nuts, for example, the kernels in a particular value chain were all built for a different type of nut, a nut mm -hmm. that's typically found in Asia or in Europe. And so literally there was low productivity. And so what they did is, leveraging their experience and their engineering background, were able to retrofit and create, like, tools and processing tools for mm -hmm. these certain African crops. And so I think just being able to, again, leverage technology, and this is harder even more than software, um, to solve African problems. So it allowed them to increase efficiency um, by more than 300% of what's currently happening in the market, and they're scaling quite aggressively across Nigeria. And so I think the same thing goes across even just general technology and having that innovation mindset where your starting point is not necessarily how is this problem currently being solved, but given this is a problem <clears throat> from first principles, what's the best way this can be solved? as opposed to being constrained by what the current approach is. Mm, mm, mm. Absolutely love that. And, you know, if I, I did say I'll, I'll preface this topic, so I'm going to do that now, right? Um, so <laughs> the, the, the African Union's Agenda 2063, um, you know, is, is, is a document that, that pretty much pertains to exactly what, we, what we're talking about, which is, you know, Africa's future and, and the potential for that future. And, and, you know, one of the things that it talks about is a prosperous Africa, you know, based on inclusive growth and sustainable development. And, you know, two, two of the goals that underpin that um, are that of a skills revolution, right? So through science and technology and, yeah. you know, transforming economies as well. So I guess firstly, right, um, and this is a three-part question. So Firstly, how possible do you think this is by, by 2063? You know, so AU or the African Union, as, as it were, um, you know, has this agenda to, to achieve this by 2063. Um, so, and then secondly, how do you think we approach this in a multidisciplinary form? So obviously one arm is, is inclusive growth and the other arm is, you know, sustainable development. And within that, you, you need the sort of skills revolution, right, through science and technology. And you also need the transformed economies as a result. And, you know, the, so the two sort of work hand in hand, as it were. 
Um, so how do you think you approach that in an multidisciplinary form? And thirdly, you know, what are the baby steps? Because I think sometimes we 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 mm. we can think you know too far ahead to say, okay, no, we need to transform Africa tomorrow. We need to we need to take these massive steps. I want to talk more about the baby steps as well. Yeah, and I think to your point, I think it hits the nail on the head. Where you know, I think a multidisciplinary approach is the only approach that will be successful. Um, yeah. And we can have the philosophical debates around other approaches, but the reality is a multidisciplinary approach is an inclusive approach. Because mm. if you're able to bring fresh thinking to a problem and able to, again, be able to rally and make it inclusive by bringing on different viewpoints, different perspectives, different approaches, yes, in a constructive and congruent way so that the ultimate vision is not necessarily missed, I think you get the best outcomes. But one of the key drivers why when to your question earlier, even though I have a background in commerce and very much in the business space, I was intentional about studying a master's in public policy at Oxford for my first degree because I wanted to understand that different approach to solving a problem at that particular scale. And so I think it definitely does require that multidisciplinary approach. I think mm -hmm. what the key thing there is then how do you ensure that, one, I think coordination and collaboration, um, mm -hmm. which I think is where the AU and other similar bodies play an important role, almost being that unifying point, almost like the owner of the agenda, not necessarily the one that owns on delivery, but owns on the coordination. And yeah. I think it is right where, you know, and look, we can look to many examples around like development, you know, where you can say like, look, fine, you know, look what Singapore did back then or Malaysia. And I mean, there are many theories around and case studies around how like they did well. And I think, look, I think some of the points you mentioned, you know, in terms of like, you know, when you were discussing earlier on the importance of impactful conversations, you know, being able to hear someone's story and make and take away elements relevant to your journey. And I think it's important for us to learn from people around the world, to learn from each other as a continent and as countries on the continent and be able to take the best parts relevant to us and almost blend that into our growth path and our journeys. Um, and I think it's quite important for us to, to take that approach. And so I think to your question, is it attainable? Um, you know, I'm an eternal optimist. I think with the right amount of focus and, and commitment, I think it is possible. And by no means is it a small task. I think that's the point you mentioned where you know, you have to walk before you run. If, yeah. you try, if you try stand and run, you'll trip. And mm -hmm. so I think it's one of those things where you want to be able to know what does success look like, not only in, you know, 20 years, but what does success look like next year? What does success look like tomorrow? Um, and mm -hmm. so something which um, I used to put up on our, on our company, on, on, on our, on our, inside our company walls, was an equation which essentially uh, showed two equations. So one was, one point not 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 one to the power of three six five and yeah. then um no not point nine 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 um to the power of three six five and just how after three hundred and sixty five days in a year what the outsized impact is of just putting in that extra bit each day and compounding versus going backwards. And I think if you have very defined goals and I think inclusive goals where everyone's able to leverage their skills, their understanding and their experience for that objective you'll definitely get there. But I do think it does require intention and it does require leadership in achieving that. And I think it's easy to have a summit once a year, but what are our governments, what are we as citizens, what are we as business leaders doing yes. in how we make decisions every day that further that ambition and that vision? Mm. And, it's, and I absolutely love what you said there because you, you've, it's going to have to be a focused approach, right? It, it's going to have to be an extremely focused approach. We we cannot get there by by straying wayward of that off that path, you know, mm. for for five years and then you know trying to come back. 
we are going to be asked to extremely focused to transform this. And so I want to ask you a question that was brought up, you know, by, by one of our listeners who submitted a question in um, before the episode. And it, it actually, it, it's more of a very specific scenario, right? And, and it leads to sort of the, the, the next topic which we'll talk about, which is, you know, around digital transformation. Um, but so the listener says, you know, I joined the workforce over a, a little over a year ago and I'm already in my second job. And, you know, one thing that's for certain is that um, very much likely to, so when you join into the workforce or into a job, you're very much likely to undergo some kind of training. Um, different companies have different systems and will obviously have to train individuals on specific systems. But what I've realized is that most fields um, have some common factors within the field, right? So you get accounting graduates from, from four different companies um, doing the same Excel onboarding course and after joining their respective companies. So which got me thinking, and this is the listener, not me, I can't take credit for this thought, um, which got me thinking that I guess I'd like to hear your take on this. You know, are universities going along with the times? You know, are they sending off graduates um, equipped for today's workplace um, and the necessary skills for that? And my thinking is that continuously changing the syllabus to suit a continuously changing world would be a bit of a hassle. So do you think access to e-learning resources where students can take courses on skills that will better equip them for the industry they're planning on joining is a good idea. So that's a fully loaded question. That's a question yeah. that is. And it's a meaty one. I think it's a important one. I think it's also born out of, of the experiences, I think, of the, of the individual there. And I, look, and so I'm, I'm, a, I'm an e-learning bull, obviously, because, like, you know, that's my industry. But I also don't think e-learning in and of itself is a panacea to, to everything. Um, and so at that level... Um, it's one of those things whereby I think definitely, yes, can there be supplementary training that enables to bridge the gap between, let's say, university and the world of work? Definitely. And I think that could even be offered in a university setting. I mean, that's where I'd like, like for example, the doctor or like the medicine profession, where before you hit the, the real world, you actually have years in practice exposing to certain skill sets. But in the same vein, you're right. I think that there's certain things that, so we work with many large corporates in South Africa and abroad on graduate programs. So most programs that help upskill graduates um, as they, as they, for example, enter the world of work. And so at that level, um, you then think through how does one actually enable um, people to have those skill sets that equip them regardless of where they are. So that could be like, you know, empathy, um, showing like a personal brand. A big one is Excel, as an example. And so yes. just being able to leverage those um, are very valuable. Um, to assist that. And so I think it definitely is possible to bring e-learning into that equation. And I think more effort can be applied to almost have base case skills. Almost think about like the US where there's almost like a liberal arts degree and then you do the specific stuff. I think that could be applied somewhat to the graduate space as well. Mm-hmm. And I think you've answered a very difficult question very well. I've always told the guests that, uh, always told my guests that uh, the listeners always often ask very difficult questions. So uh, very well done for, <laughs> for answering that one. But um, finally, Lovin, I want to touch on a little bit on, on digital transformation and, and, you know, the role that this has to play, you know, in the future of, of technology and innovation in South Africa. And, you know, in this, I want to ask you, you know, a, a, a two-pronged question, which is, you know, how do, we, how do we make sure that, you know, this digital transformation in a South African sense is uh, inclusive, you know, in all parts of our economy? And, you know, what role do you think government has to play within this? 
Yeah, I think, you know, it's a it's interesting one way. I think, like, I think, so the government always has a key role to play in these sort of things. And I think it's almost like, where does government's role stop? And I think it's very easy to be like, you know, we pay our taxes, therefore the government must do everything. Um, in terms of like, you know, setting the agenda, delivering on the agenda, tracking the results, and then like, and I think it's almost like, I think with the role of government generally, and even in this context here, is more around the creating an enabling environment for it. Exactly. And so whether that is in, you know, creating the right incentives for individuals or public sector actors to come to the table, almost creating the rules of the game, so they may not necessarily provide the medals at the end of the game or the soccer ball, but they can provide the rules that enable the soccer game to take place. And I think that's the role government can play at a base case. I think depending on the typical views, like, you know, socialism versus not, there are different roles government can play. But for me, at a base case, I think that needs to be true. And so I think in that way, I think even think about innovation and technology where government can play a role. And I think about the U.S. example with like, you know, think about, you know, GPS or the Internet, how these were actually government-funded military things, which then found a public good outside of the military. And I think yeah. there's certain catalytic things that the government can play in, in enabling um, those sorts of things by very targeted investments. And so that's often, I think, as a, and so some of the work I do now, I advise one of the ministers here in South Africa in the digital technology space. And again, it's about saying, how do you best use the fiscus to catalyze the transformation you want in the economy? And I think that's where it comes down to being very specific and making very specific choices. But also, it's important to have conversations between citizens, government, and private sector, because the reality is, if government thinks that by doing X, someone will do Y, but you never told them that that's what you expect, or ask them if they do that, you may have very funny outcomes. Yeah, 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 and I think that's extremely, extremely insightful, and, and, and thank you for that. Melvin, I want to thank you so much for uh, coming on to, to episode 20 of Impactful Conversations. I think it's been a an, an amazing chat. Um, I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed uh, listening to to your answer. Um, what has been some, I think, really thought provoking questions that I think you know the listener can can take away and 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 really you know think deeply about. Um, so I want to thank you so much for for coming on to the show. Um, I know you're an extremely busy man, so this is a, a nice excuse for the two of us to also catch up as well. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you so much for. Um, for, for coming on to the show. I look forward to, to welcoming you back um, in the future. Um, so, well, thank you, thank you so much. And I hope that you've also, I hope this has also been reflective. Um, yeah. You know, often the guests, the guest, you know, tell me that this has been a very reflective episode as they sort of reflect back on their journey mm. as well. So it's added value to you as well in that sense. No, definitely. And thank you very much for the invitation. I think impactful conversations is I think at its core, at least its mission is definitely one which I support. I think is very valuable. I think was have been has been missing in the discourse for a long time, and so very honored to be able to contribute to that. Um, and also thank you to your listeners for for for, for listening in and, and and giving us the time and joining us for this on this reflective journey as well. Awesome, awesome. And uh, to the to you, the listener, thank you very much for uh, for joining us on episode twenty. We hope that you've enjoyed this. Um, so stick around for, for the next few episodes that are coming up. Uh, do subscribe if you're listening on podcasts or if you're listening on YouTube. And, uh, yeah, send us your thoughts. So you go to impactfulconversations.co.za and, uh, you know, hit the contact us button and send us your thoughts and what you thought, you know, on how the episode impacted you. It's always lovely to hear from you. And thank you so much for supporting this, for sharing it with your circles and for being impacted and being inspired to change your community. And that's it from us. So thank you very much and goodbye.
Thank you very much for tuning in and listening to the episode. I hope that you were impacted positively and that you found substance and significance whilst listening to the episode. Head over to the Impactful Conversations website at impactfulconversations.co.za to find out more about the show. To stay up to date with the latest episodes, please subscribe to the podcast and give it a five-star rating. You can also check out and subscribe to my episodes in video format on the Impactful Conversations YouTube channel. Just head over to YouTube and search Impactful Conversations. Thank you to all who have listened in and subscribed. Why not share the episode with a family member or a friend who you think could be positively impacted? Anyway, until the next episode, bye-bye, stay safe, stay healthy, and wash your hands.